I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan, web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. The real value of national income rose by almost 2% in 2022, but this increase was felt unevenly. Between 2021 and 2022, poverty rose by 4.6 percentage points, the largest one-year jump in poverty rates on record. Child poverty more than doubled, from 5.2% in 2021 to 12.4% in 2022. The share of households that couldn't reliably afford food rose by more than 2.5 percentage points to 12.8%. What are the consequences of living in poverty? How does growing up poor affect the development of children and their chances for escaping poverty as adults? I'll ask these questions and others of Professor Lisa A. Genetian. Lisa is an economist and Pritzker Professor of Early Learning Policy Studies at the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. Her research addresses a wide range of questions about child poverty, with a particular focus on how child poverty shapes children's development and the role of public policy. I'm also pleased to say that Lisa has published six memos with Econofact. Lisa, welcome to Econofact Chats. Thanks so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. And wow, I can't believe that it's been six memos. Lisa, you follow the issue of poverty very closely, especially child poverty. What was your reaction to the news that the poverty rate increased by so much in 2022 and that the child poverty rate more than doubled? Yeah, along with many of my peers and colleagues that have been working in this space, we were not terribly surprised. Um, in fact, <laughs> the, there were predictions this was going to happen, um, in part because we know that poverty responds to policy choices and policy investments. And what we saw during the pandemic was some of the usual kind of policy um, cushion that happens during recessions, like I'm thinking things like um, replacing people's earnings through the unemployment insurance system. Um, and so that's already in place, and that certainly happened to some extent over the pandemic. But the unique thing that happened over the pandemic was expansions of benefits that had never been there before for people that usually would not have been eligible for benefits. What's striking to me, Lisa, is that at a time when we had one of the worst downturns since the 1930s, there was actually a reduction in the poverty rate. Yeah, and so I'm gonna go back to this really interesting um, grand policy experiment that happened over the pandemic related to investments. Um, and there were two, two arenas that were sort of new um, that really helped reduce poverty, even though we were going through um, uh, a recessionary time period um, in the economy. One was an expansion of food benefits, um, and that was through schools, and that was directly to especially people with children. 
Um, and so if you're subsidizing the cost of food, um, you're you know, also allowing families to have more money to spend in other ways. So food subsidies was one thing that was uniquely expanded. Um, the second is a policy uh, that would serve direct money to lots of folks through the tax system. Um, and that included people who in prior years and in prior kind of um, economies would have never received a tax refund, right? So this has been called the uh, 2021 Expanded Child Tax Credit. Um, so that was a new infusion of money to many families who had never before been eligible for this kind of money. And so those expansions, I think, really um, made a big difference in child poverty, um, even though the, it was a you know recessionary time period. And more recently, we have the mirror image of that. Even though there's a recovery and unemployment is at almost historic lows, there's been an increase in poverty rates, as I mentioned in the introduction. Yeah, um, it's so interesting thinking about that. This is like a dilemma that really puzzles actually many of my students. <laughs> so we think about economic growth as being a good thing and having um, natural good spillovers for well-being and improving people's lives. Um, but it's mysterious how a very wealthy nation under economic growth can also have high rates of poverty. And so I think in this case with the pandemic, it's really useful to re reflect on the circumstances of growth and kind of where the economy was at right before the growth kind of um, happened. So we can think about this, I guess I think about this in a couple of ways. I think about um, workers, right, and how they're responding to growth and their ability to enter the labor force and take advantage of the growth. Um, and I think of um, an economy's public infrastructure. So let's say, you know, can people get to jobs? Are the roads good? Is transportation clear? Is the internet up and working? Um, and then we could ask these questions in a slightly different way. So when growth happens, who's benefiting and who's not? Um, and I would say uh, the circumstances of the US before this recent growth, you know, were, were pretty tricky for some folks. Um, folks that didn't have good social and economic cushions, um, folks that really rely on good childcare um, in order to work. Um, folks that need working cars and reliable buses in order to get to work. Um, and, you know, the realities of especially low-skilled, low-wage work um, and the way that growth happens there um, means that you're asking people to, to take on even more risks when they don't, when they themselves are recovering from something like a pandemic. Um, so I think the, the point to make here is that economic growth is a great thing. Um, and there will be hopefully lots of benefits for everyone in an economy, um, but who immediately benefits and how quickly is going to vary quite a bit. Um, and we really have to look towards, I think what we're seeing here is right where the, the sticky spots are in our economy. And I, I really wanna highlight the role of childcare here for many, for many people. And I guess what we're also seeing is a withdrawal of these policies that were helping people out. That's and very so true in the face of the growth when the policies are withdrawn it, more than um, the, the growth effects um, on diminishing poverty were more than offset by the withdrawal of government benefits. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I was listening to a story recently. Um, I forget where this mom was from, but she was talking about the retraction of the school meals program, you know, that was done um, offsite, but it was distributed through schools in the height of the pandemic. Um, and so this school's meal 
program, the expansion had been retracted. And this retraction um, really affected the family budget, right? So while this mom re-entered work and her earnings were enough to kind of get by, the additional cost now of providing breakfast and lunch to her children was a real tipping point uh, for that family. I think that's a nice example of what happens when you retract one little bit. It seems like a little bit of a policy, but it can really make a difference for families who are just about to get back into the labor force. Yeah, it can seem like a little bit for those of us in the middle class or who are well off, but people who are really living on the edge, every little bit counts. And this can really tip them over into a situation of having a much harder time making ends meet. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Lisa, poverty statistics are based on income, but as you point out in one of your EconoFact memos that you published about two years ago, a focus on poverty income or income poverty overlooks precarious economic conditions that are related to low levels of wealth rather than income. Can you say a bit about the difference between income-based and wealth-based measures of poverty and why wealth poverty is so important for our understanding of the lives of the poor? Yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, I've been uh, very humbled by this recent expanded view of financial resources and low financial resources that crosses wealth and income. I would consider myself uh, more traditionally an income poverty expert. Um, so I want to thank my uh, collaborators, Christina Gibson Davis and Lisa Keister and economist Andy Darity for really opening my eyes to wealth as an important independent um, aspect of um, financial security for families. Um, you know, some of our listeners might not understand right away the distinction between income and wealth. Could you just quickly describe that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so we think about income as sort of the immediate resources available, like cash flow. What is the money I have right now to take care of things like our, my needs to buy food, to pay for housing, to pay for rent, to pay bills? Um, and the way that we have, from a policy perspective, thought about um, wealth building is uh, that some of that income, that cash flow, might also go towards savings, right? You might think about a rainy day fund um, or some savings for future education of your child or putting money away to buy a home. And so cash flow, how much money people have access to, has been a real focus for um traditional sort of traditional thinking around economic policy. Um, and what this work on wealth has really opened my eyes up to is that the stock of resources matter. So um, here is a scenario, let's say your cash flow is really low. Um, you know, your boss called and said, you know what, I don't need you this week um, because of whatever reason. Um, so now you don't have earnings that week because it is a on-demand type of job. Um, and so to get by that week, you might rely on some savings, right? And so that would be considered the stock of um, money you have available for yourself um, and is a picture sort of also of your wealth. Um, and then you, know, you can think of stock also broadly in other ways like owning a home. And we know that owning a home is a really stable um, form, a really positive asset. Um, it's really helpful for children. And so this distinction between like cash and having money to take care of daily needs um, versus wealth. And so having some economic cushion to lean back on during times of emergency or to make good investments um, has really been kind of distinct 
in big policy circles. And I think what we try to argue through this memo is we really need to think about both. And so um, this, this work has really been, I think, core to thinking about both uh, low wealth and low income. And when we looked at the statistics, we found that many, many children are living in households um, with just low resources on both fronts. And not only low levels, but volatility as well. When people don't have much wealth, they lack the cushion that can insulate them from shortfalls in income, from their income volatility. And in fact, your latest Econofact memo, which you wrote with Bradley Hardy of the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown, is titled The Financial and Psychological Costs of Income Volatility. What did your research find about income volatility? Which people are most affected and for what reasons? Yeah. So I want to just start um, by saying, I'm just going to try to describe what income volatility is, because that might be a really mysterious term for lots of folks. Um, and in fact, it's like a super complicated term. Um, and I appreciated the hard work done with the Econofact to convey this. So the idea behind income volatility is that um, the, you know, the cash resources, the money available to you to take care of your daily needs um, could be shifting day to day and could have some uncertainty around it. Um, you know, folks think about, for example, relying on the gig economy um, as one example of potentially having a lot of not only work hours volatility, but how much money you can make in any one day. Um, and so when that kind of, you know, reliance on income is not predictable, um, it's really stressful. And it really puts kind of a tax on the ways that you can plan to spend your money. Um, and it forces you to think really in the moment, right? And day to day. Um, and that, you know, that also puts, imposes some constraints on how much you can think about the future. Um, and this has all kinds of ripple effects on family life and especially caregiving and parenting of children. So in the memo, we try to talk about how do we measure this? <laughs> And you know this is hard to do, but we know that um, from uh, longstanding data sources that are collected by the U.S. government, um, we can see that um, the sources of income we rely on the most, earnings and government income, are actually changed quite a bit um, year to year and sometimes month to month. And if that is not known to people getting the income, it, it kind of imposes this extra planning cost and this extra cost for you know, budgeting, right? So if I know I got X earnings today and I don't know if I'm gonna get the same earnings in the next month, you know, that's an extra planning exercise. We have uh, an Econofact Chats podcast with Arlene Geronimus of the University of Michigan who talks about weathering. And what you're saying sounds a lot like weathering in that ongoing prolonged stress has really detrimental effects on people's health and well-being. Yeah, I think that's right. I think this idea of uncertainty and the unpredictable nature of something as core as you know money um, and being able to pay for things like food and pay bills can um, cause a lot of wear and tear. And the wear and tear can be physiological and biological. Um, and you know, being in an escalated kind of stress state. Um, and the other way that can really affect uh, folks is the attention they have to other things, other matters. Um, and we try to talk about both of those things in this memo. As I mentioned in the introduction, Lisa, one of your areas of research is child poverty 
And as I also mentioned in the introduction, this issue is especially relevant now that we've seen child poverty rates more than double in 2022 as compared to 2021. In what ways are children particularly hard hit by poverty? So this is a really big question. <laughs> Maybe. And so I'm going to um, I'm going to talk about it in lots of ways. Um, so one's going to sound a little frustrating. I mean, poverty has so many negative impacts on children. Um, and we have really good uh, research that shows it affects children's health. It affects their start in life from the moment that they're born. It affects how healthy they are when they're born. Um, it affects potentially their brain development and rapid periods of growth in early years. It affects how they learn and how they regulate themselves and adapt to their environments. The, it affects the responsibilities they're asked to take on, sometimes too early over the course of their development. Um, and you know, typically, um, as economists, we try to capture all these impacts through things like education and earnings. Um, and how children are doing on test scores. Um, but I think part of what I want to convey is, you know, those outcomes are really important and give us a picture, but there's so much happening underneath that um, as well that we need to be cognizant of. You are involved with a number of other scholars in a research project called Babies First Years. And this, from what I understand, is the first study in the United States to assess the impact of poverty reduction on family life and infant and toddlers' cognitive, emotional, and brain development. Can you tell us a little bit about that project and what you and your colleagues have found so far? So indeed, you know, I'm gonna characterize this as sort of a landmark randomized control study that we hope will transcend um, time and space um, and inform science and policy for many, many years. Um, so the genesis of this was really to answer a really basic science question. And that is, what is the causal impact of poverty in the early years of rapid brain development. And so our goal was, can we isolate the role of um, a mechanism, income in our case, as a way of reducing poverty, and can we connect that to how children are developing in those first few years? This is a really hard time. I just wanna um, mention this. this is a really hard time to capture children's development, right? There's no uh, test score. Um, you can't talk to children. Um, and it's really, really expensive. Um, to do the kind of observational measures that child developmentalists tend to do. And so measuring brain development is really a novel way to think about capturing children's development really early. It's um, really interesting, those challenges that you're mentioning and the fact that this is such an interdisciplinary study. Do you have any preliminary results that you can speak to? Yeah, um, we are learning lots of things. Um, so. We landed on a design of a thousand mother-infant pairs. They're recruited from four different, very diverse cities in the U.S. Um, and from the after all the consent procedures, they automatically get an unconditional monthly cash gift. There are two groups. Everyone gets a little money, and the high cash gift group gets $333, and that's about $4,000 a year. So it's about a 20% um, income boost for the families who are coming in because they're residing in poverty. Um, so, so, you know, I'm going to bucket, like we've learned, uh, two buckets of things. Um, things that inform areas that prove to be controversial in the space of giving money with no strings attached to families. And then another bucket of, well, what happens when you give money to families in terms of um, impacts on family life and children? Um, 
So one thing right away is we've learned, so we're giving this money out on this debit card and it's working really, really well um, from the time of birth. And I think from a, like how do we implement policy perspective, I think that's a really interesting um, result. Um, we see that families seem to be spending um, money and time so far. These are like really early findings, like within the first year. They seem to be spending money and time specifically investing in their children. So they're spending the money on things like books and toys and diapers and clothing. Um, and the moms who are the, you know, who are the reporters in our survey are reporting spending more time reading and storytelling um, with their children. What we're not seeing um, is some is any support for some of the thorny issues that come up in policy debates. Um, so one of those is we're not seeing dramatic reductions in people working or dramatic reductions in earnings. Um, and this is sort of a, you know, a merited concern. So what happens when you compensate people, you kind of give money with no conditions, are they going to drop out of the labor force? We're not seeing that. We're also not seeing the money being spent on things that might not be good for families or children. We're not seeing money being spent on alcohol or cigarettes um, or those kinds of things. Um, we're also not seeing any so far, you know, families kind of dissolving, um, sort of the money being a reason to suddenly live um, apart from the father or to break up a relationship. Um, and so those three tend to be like these thorny issues in this conversation about giving money unconditioned to low-income families, and we're not seeing that much evidence to support um, those issues. So Lisa, this is kind of bringing us full circle to a topic that we were discussing at the very beginning, the way in which the support during COVID really helped reduce poverty. And what you're showing now is that those reductions in poverty led to really important benefits for children. And so I guess this speaks a little bit to what could public policy do and how efficacious would it be? And the reduction in poverty that we saw with the government programs during COVID and the results that you're starting to get with this very ambitious project point to really efficacious ways in which helping out the poor could help out their children and help generations of Americans. Yeah, I mean, certainly that was one of the reasons why we designed this study, right? We didn't know there was going to be a pandemic <laughs> or all the expansions in pandemic benefits or, you know, that families who had never received money from the government were suddenly going to receive government. Um, so we're delighted if this study can help generate some evidence around those big questions. Um, you know, I just want to note like two really important context things. The money that uh, this study is designed to test is much smaller. Um, than the expansions that happened over the pandemic benefit kind of period, especially that expanded child tax credit. Um, and in fact, because of you know the price of goods has changed so much, and we don't adjust uh, the cash gift in the study by um, cost of living, um, and it's not adjusted by number of children. And those are two big key features of some of the pandemic expansions. Um, but you're right that we hope that this study can help inform, provide, you know, one bit of many bits of evidence towards what would happen if we provided an income, a basic income support to families. Well, this is what economists want to do, right? We want to provide evidence in order to make better policy. And, and I commend you on the work that you've done to do that, especially this new study. And I also thank you, Lisa, for making these results much more widely known through your contributions to Econofact. 
So thanks very much for speaking with me today. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Michael. It was a pleasure. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.